Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human Rest Stop on the Information Superhighway. A moment to press pause and ask, what are we doing for whom and why? Playing for Team Human today, science and technology journalist Clive Thompson. We've so absorbed the bit-based logic of the way things work that we've kind of forgotten the way things work in the non-scaled atom-based world and the values that it holds. Clive, the author of Coders, will be explaining how the values of code became the norm and how some coders are successfully avoiding the lust for scale. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been getting a lot of great email from listeners over these last few weeks, and a lot of them have ideas for monologues, and I'm trying to to use them uh, <laughs> for all of our benefit. One of them came in from Brady Mawson, who got really interested in the term human resources and the way that language really works with the language of work uh, uh, to really frame human beings as machines. He's looking at language like man hours and man months. And rather than looking at at human beings as as humans with desires and a thirst for knowledge and meaning, that this kind of terminology, the terminology of human resources, looks at people as if they were machines. And I I completely agree. It's a utilitarian frame of human beings that was really invented in the industrial age, when we started to look at people less as craftspeople who made stuff and more as employees of one of the few chartered monopolies that was actually allowed to create or produce any value. That's the transition I wrote about in Life, Inc. and Throwing Rocks to the Google Bus, that that we became employees and consumers rather than humans. And 
nothing against labor. I mean, labor is a great thing, and it's great to think of our work as contributing to some greater enterprise or project that's one of the ways to experience some meaning in one's life. But it's another thing when you think of yourself or your bosses and other people think of you simply as as inputs and outputs. Then you're not a human being creating value. Then you're really just a machine making stuff. And this question of the language that we use to understand people, to talk about people, and how some of our language is so anti-human, it reminds me of a very true anecdote about when Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate, was on Sesame Street. There's this song on Sesame Street called The People in Your Neighborhood, and it goes something like this. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. Say, who are the people in your neighborhood? The people that you meet each day. Here comes someone now. So listen to that lyric. A person that you meet each day. A person that you meet? See, when Ralph Nader, when he was on Sesame Street and he was supposed to sing along in that song, the idea was that they found a consumer advocate in the neighborhood, uh, being one of the people that you know, he was conscious of the way the phrase person that you know dehumanized the person. I mean, it's been chronicled as just, oh, he didn't like the grammar. He, he was a stickler for grammar and wanted the appropriate grammar of a person whom you know to be used. But that's not what was going on for Ralph Nader. It's not that he cared so much about the English language being respected. It was that he wanted the person to be respected. A person is not a that. A person is a who. Not just because it's grammatically correct, but because people are not things that you know. People are human beings. So here's how it was when when Ralph had to sing along. Here's how they changed it. My name's Ralph Nader. I'm a consumer advocate. A consumer advocate's a person in your neighborhood. In your neighborhood. In your neighborhood. A consumer advocate's a person in your neighborhood. That's a mouthful. A person whom you meet each day. So it may seem like a trivial point, this language that we use, but it really, it helps us to frame how we see one another and ourselves as objects generating labor, as consumers generating purchases, as users generating data. See, when a person is an object, the only thing that matters is their outputs, but there's something else going on. There's some internal essential experience of being human there's this ability to resonate with the larger whole or organism of which we are a part. And honestly, focusing too hard on what's coming out, on how much volume we're getting into the assembly line as assets, it can actually degrade the quality of whatever it is that we're trying to produce. However well-intentioned we may be, however much we may want to contribute to one another and to the world, If we look at ourselves as resources, as things only worthy in terms of our contributions, we undermine the dignity and purpose of any of our endeavors. Even in the name of service, we dehumanize ourselves. And I guess that's my way of letting you know we're going to be taking a few weeks off 
from Team Human. We've been going relatively nonstop for 129 weeks now, and I've also been on tour for Team Human, trying to do at least three podcasts or radio shows with other folks and one talk or class every day. It's just so hard for me to say no to a request you know, I think partly because I'm looking at myself in this way as only valuable in terms of how much stuff I'm getting done. But when I got back from doing a whole bunch of events in LA a couple of weeks ago, I actually felt burnout setting in for the first time. And meanwhile, I'm getting a lot of feedback from listeners that they're burning out too. We're churning out so much more content than anyone can absorb. There's an hour a week of the show, plus the written monologues on Medium, plus all the other talks and articles we've been posting. The People really need time to catch up, or even time to read the Team Human Manifesto itself, which is really kind of the central peace around which the rest of this media is 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 hanging. So in the name of treating us all a bit more like human beings, especially Stephen, our producer and engineer, we're going to pause for a breath and an upgrade of the whole Team Human production. We're going to apply some of the lessons we've learned about what makes for a real conversation as opposed to an interview and double down on the most human and truly unique thing we've got, which is this experience of rapport and solidarity that we're offering here. So please, just as we will, please use these weeks to catch up. Consider diving into the archives of the show or even into the Team Human book or the audio book, which I read myself, and you'll see us all back here, more human than ever, in just a few weeks. I'm Brewster Kale, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Anthony Cabral, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I am on Team Human. I'm Nora Bateson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm delighted to close out this season of Team Human with a dear friend, uh, Clive Thompson. Clive writes about science and technology for the New York Times and other magazines. But his real talent has always been reporting from the intersection of technology and culture. You know, unlike me, he's a real journalist with the capacity to do legwork and reporting, but he's also a keen observer of human beings and the way different media and technological environments change the way we see ourselves and our purpose. He's just published a book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of Our World. And he brings, well, he brings a critical eye and a great sense of hope uh, to what it is that coders can do, especially if they remember that they're recoding not just machines, but coding the landscape in which human beings are going to be operating and living uh, for the next century. So we met first working on Shift magazine for nineties, late nineties, mid nineties, mid nineties, ninety six, ninety seven. And it was it was it was fun because it was like it was like a magazine. It was sort of like Wired, but much a weirder and more cultural. Well, that was the thing. I yeah. mean, so he had the zine. Yeah, you know, and. Because of the emergence of the net and the beginning of the web, yeah. a lot of us who were doing kind of strangey countercultural things, whether it was him doing shift 
Yeah. Richard Metzger doing disinfo. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. V. Vale and the research movement. Um, the whole earth people. There were a lot of people yeah, journaling like before even blogging existed. People yeah. like the idea of like I'm going to I'm going to sort of you know self create yep. these these exactly these weird forms. So of... there was this moment though that self creation, right? Like, yeah. like okay, that because the digital thing is happening, yeah. we can now move into what we were all thinking was a kind of more intentional designer autonomous reality. Yes, and the yes. magazine that we both worked for, yeah, Shift, yeah, yeah. was yeah. not about the Shift key. On the computer, so right. I mean, although that might have been the the so, metaphor, it was more about the shift. Is now we can upscale. We can yeah. go from lowercase to an uppercase civilization. You know where we're yeah, gonna yeah. have control and Absolutely. do weird stuff. And that magazine, that magazine failed. While yeah. while Wired magazine succeeded, Mondo <laughs> two thousand failed. While Wired magazine succeeded, yes, everything failed. While Wired magazine, all the weird succeeded. stuff failed. Yeah, exactly. and I'm wondering so. The idea that we had of yeah. coding, recoding reality yeah. sort yeah. of shifted to a much more literal understanding of what yes. code, or we're going to recode the market, I guess, or use code just to amplify the same old market. Yep, exactly. Something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what happened was that there was, I mean, I've thought a lot about this and talked to a lot of people about it, including some of the people that were involved in the late 90s. Uh, trying to formalize and make some of the tools for everyday weirdos, right? You know, uh, um, like some of the first kind of blogging tools that were very crude and whatnot, but had that idea of, you know, let's create things that let people, everyday weirdos do things. Um, and that was like what, like Dave Weiner? And, and yeah, Dave Weiner and Neil Dash with uh, movable type, uh, right. uh, six apart and whatnot. And so what the heck happened? I've had some conversations with them, you know, you know, over the years for various things I've said. A couple things happened, I think. One of them is that, like in a weird way, I think because it's harder to do things, it was harder to do new things online back then than it is now for a bunch of infrastructural reasons, which is to say merely getting a server to host a forum, you know, for your skateboarding uh, forum, for your origami forum, for your guitar pedal forum, for whatever, for, you know, for knitting forum was actually really hard back then. And so what happened is, is that the, 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 the the, the VCs began to realize, well, there was a lot of money to be had in essentially creating these highly commercial uh, platforms. The first generation all died during the dot-com bust. Like you had things like uh, GeoCities and whatnot. Lots of money put into sort of creating tools to allow people to do this stuff. And it was super weird, but, there, but the growth trajectory was always under VC logic. Something has to, has to explode and go into hockey stick growth in a hockey stick scale to, for us to extract our money from it. And so that started to, to sort of attract, you know, a lot of talent away from the weird stuff to the more, the more VC positive stuff. And I think really the moment when that kicked into overdrive is probably Facebook. Like when Facebook goes from being like a quirky, like keep in mind, Facebook was originally regarded as, as a super quirky, weird thing. They could not get anyone to work for them. They could not hire any talent. Uh, no one was really sure this was going to be a thing, um, but once once the you know the sort of you know the venture capital decided to heavily back it, and it became clear that this was actually going to make a ton of money with ads. Um, that was sort of the beginning of the nail in the coffin in anything that was distributed and and sort of user owned and user operated because these highly centralized things had. Uh, a megaphone to reach everyone, right? And it becomes, and it becomes well, rather than sort of work with some bespoke thing that I've done or some ba thing based on my community, I'm just going to use this big corporate tool. 
this big commercial tool. But that that's partly because the users wanted the users wanted to scale. Absolutely. In other words, we weren't sad. He was like nobody was satisfied in their little AOL group or in their little Usenet group. Yeah, yeah. Being popular in the writers conference on the well right, right among 40 other writers which is a beautiful place or in my case echo uh, uh right or echo, BDS, echo right, nyc yeah. baby yeah, 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 um, exactly that We're, it wasn't enough somehow now we've got to be on a national scale and the facebook was going to be or more sure, international scale sure sure i mean like uh, some of this yeah you're right i mean some of it is simply like the like you can't you can't blame you know you know VCs or corporate models or whatever it is for everything because some of this plugged into our innate people's innate desire for um, attention and fame, yeah. you know, or and whatnot. Even you know, just, I mean, and I've, I've, I've thought a lot about the the hackers I knew, who people like me, even yeah. my parents were worried about me that I was interested in the internet, right? In the early days, because it, it seemed dangerous. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was not just dangerous but useless, yeah. and that I wasn't going to have a career. You could have been a doctor. And you're gonna go into this interactive. You want to go on a CD-ROM, my my son. You know. And when the VCs came to the first ones, I remember when um, Matt and Jonathan, uh, 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 who did uh, uh, Organic Online. Sure. Yeah. 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 I remember. Matt, and the, you know, there the, were the the Stoyers also who did the other one, Cyberganic or something. Yep. That VC came to them, and it's like. It meant that your parents were accept. Our parents' generation was recognizing that what we did had value. Right. Exactly. I mean, my my experience with that with that was that uh, in in the early eighties, um, I was interested in programming. I was learning basic. I would go to my school library, get the book out. Yeah. I would write code by hand on paper. I didn't have a computer. I had like whatever time I could catch on a computer at school or at a friend's house. My mother refused my dad was was a, was a was a civil civil engineer and he was very interested in the idea of having a computer but my mother said she refused to let us have a computer in the household because i would just sit around playing games all the time and drop right. out of school and of course what she didn't see you know what was hard to see was that this was this creative palette for me um, the, there was one summer when i actually got a vic 20 handed down by my my my, my father's friend he he came over with it under his under his arm and said so your kid likes this computer stuff right uh, I did, in fact, like the, yeah. this computer stuff. So I had that for four months. So yeah, we, uh, there was exact, there was a exact sort of thing of like it, it felt, um, it felt dangerous, weird, and useless, and, and a waste of time. Uh, um, Which and, was and, when it was at its peak, I think, of, of effectiveness. <laughs> well, I mean, like, well, this is the thing. Like, I mean, honestly, like, so the thing here's the dialectic I see is that whenever the marketplace pays attention to a, a media form, it grows big, and with the with the hugeness, there is some utility, right? I mean, like you talked about how people wanted the scale and size and like that of, say, Twitter or Facebook. And there is there was some value in that, yeah. right? Like, like we used to say, like, you know, some of these large-scale conversations that we've been able to have uh, socially over the last five years, uh, ranging from Black Lives Matter to you know, We Are the 1%, to all these different things, were catalyzed by the fact that there was these large areas where, pe where individual people could get the word out to other large groups of people. You weren't going to get that with a million small discussion forums, right? You know, you weren't going to, that, that was the advantage of scale for those conversations, right. making the leap from the margins to the mainstream. And I, and I you know, that was, that was valuable, valuable stuff. Or police abuse of power, you know, like some of the, like everyone I've talked to is an activist in that area is like, everyone, you know, obviously, you know, activists have been talking about police abuse of power against you know, young black Americans for a long time, but no one had paid attention to it until you had these 
the intrusions of these videos directly into these massive networks. So right, that, like Rodney King. Exactly. So, so there's exactly. So there's the value. Um, but, 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 and the big buts are, you know, uh, those, you know, this is, you know, you've documented this in your writing, I've documented it in mine. Anytime you start moving towards that, that massive scale, everything gets handed over to algorithms for sorting, right? Because no, you're now operating at an inhuman scale. You cannot, you know, you, you, no one could look at everything that's happening uh, on Twitter. No one can look at everything that's happening on, on um, Facebook in their friend group. So they start building algorithms to sort for it, and you are just on a slope downwards to the world of like hot takes and rewarding extreme expression because that's what bursts through. So to me, to me, I see the inflection point when things kind of inevitably go off the rails with with any 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 new media is when it goes big. And Tim Wu has documented this really well in his books. Like this is what happened to radio. This is what happened to TV. This is what happened to a, a lot of like he, when he looks at the internet, he sees the same damn thing that happened with radio, Profu you know, early days, profusion of tiny, weird little, you know, community-based mm -hmm. things, high level of local purchase. I would walk into the garage, you know, so, like literally there was these guys who would run a radio station while they were like doing lube jobs on cars. Like they, like, they had the radio station and they're like, and they, yeah. and they would literally be like, okay, that's, that's like the local, the local harmonica band. I've got to go lube up like a car. I'll be back in, in an hour, maybe, uh, and we'll do some more music, you know. That's, that's literally how community-based it was. And that all dies because it turns out there's a lot of money, and the money always goes for scale and centralization. So what is it that can actually right. push back at that? I, you know, like, I, right. I'm never well, clear. Right. I'm never and clear. And right now, as a society, I feel like, you know, this is why people kept thinking my angry books were turning on the Internet, and they weren't. It was always turning on... You know, the businesses underneath it. The business models you know, and, and the if centralization. I'm, if I yeah. get angry at coders, yeah, yeah. it's because many coders seem oblivious to the economic operating system underneath the platforms that they're building. Yes, and in fact, actually, you know, it, it's quite interesting. Very much so, because a lot of engineers, they, they are, in, in the positive sense of, of their devotion to their artistry and craft. They just love being given an interesting problem to solve. And, right. and they just it's just so deliriously they're engineers. They're engineers. engineers. Yeah. Give me the problem, let me solve the problem. They're not that worried about what the results of solving that problem are. But but in a way that I... You know, and on a certain level, yeah. I feel like they... Uh, yeah? I don't, I don't know if I agree with this. I feel like on a certain level, I feel like they shouldn't have to. In other words, sure. if you yeah, love sure. code, yeah, you yeah. love code, shouldn't you be able to trust your CEO or supervisor that they're not telling you to code <laughs> yes. how to kill a Chinese child? Yeah, yeah. But, no. they're, but that, you know what I mean? So now, okay, so now your coder, if they do have the keys to the kingdom of, yeah, of yeah. human consciousness in our future, now they have to be taking ethics in college, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, like, th this may, might jump ahead a bit in our conversation, but I'll just throw there it is out no there. Ahead. There, there is no ahead. There is no ahead. Yeah, there's, there's no time. There is, there is no spoon. Uh, um, <laughs> the, the, um... The, uh, I had a really interesting conversation with this guy, and I wish I could remember his name, but if I describe this, I think any listener could probably Google it and find it. Uh, he's a computer scientist and a, I believe also a physicist, and he basically said, he wrote this piece looking at the moral um, awakening of physicists, right? So physicists in the early 20th century, you know, the Einsteinian revolution, when they were just sort of working out how the heck all this atomic stuff worked, they were like heads down you know, in a weird way, engineers of the laws of the universe. They were just thrilled by the idea that they could figure this stuff out. And it wasn't until the atom bomb came along that they realized, holy Moses. Well, it didn't oh. just come along. When they yeah, went no, to sorry. do the yeah. Manhattan yeah. Project, yeah. 
Right. They were. It was disclosed to them what right. they were building. Of course, of course. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, but even. But let, let's let's say the larger community of physicists right. outside the Manhattan Project, hundreds of them, who you know who would never have anticipated oh, that, that that what they were working on <laughs> was going to one day in they would they would have moved some grain of sand that created right. this, this hill, right? And and so what this guy said is he goes he goes that that created a, a unique moral reckoning for that discipline of physics that he detected um, in evidence. Uh, you know, in the, in the following decades, to wit, his his example, um, 1980s uh, divestment. Uh, there was divestment campaigns on campuses. You know, like from South Africa. Exactly. There was uh, students showing up and saying, "We want you know to divest all of our universities holdings in South African uh, um, companies." And they would take their petitions to all the different departments. They would take it to the English department. They would take it to the math department. They would take it to physics. They would take it to medicine. And the only department that would reliably always sign on was the physics department. Uh, and he said, right. this is because they had had their holy crap moment and recognized that they were moral actors in the larger world and they needed to always take stands on things. Right. And, his, and his view in this paper when I talked to him was that the area, software engineering has not yet had its Hiroshima moment, has not yet had its... So they uh, need a Hiroshima, because I was thinking, you know, and, and a whole bunch of talks I was doing last year before I started on the Team Human yeah. rampage was that... that <laughs> Just as the the free market libertarians ended up really infecting, mean word, right. but infecting the 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 economy and business programs, and they consciously went and they said, "We're going to get rid of all the reds. If you want funding from our company, or whatever, you've got to start promoting, you know, free market capitalism as economics." And they and every economics department, pretty much in America, is that you know. Right. To go to the engineering programs and make them infect them with ethics, yeah. with anthropology, with yeah. sociology. Yeah, I do think it's enormously valuable. In fact, and 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 as you've written in your in your writing, it's useful in the reverse too. I I, I would like some of the humanities people to have a little bit of purchase into this world also, so that yeah. they are partly because I think that they would they would demystify some of these grand claims of you know oh that's impossible or this is always necessary. That you see coming out of software companies is just absolute BS, right? You know, if right. you know a little bit of the of of, to, uh, of how to peek beneath the veil of this world of software, uh, I, w I would love to see a breadth requirement in humanities, like, hey, you're going to take you know one Python course at least, right? You right. Know? Uh, um, no, it yeah. would be it would be great. I mean, that's uh, uh, not the the balance problem right now. No, I agree. You know, I but, agree. I agree. you know, really, yeah, since yeah. Sputnik, I don't think the problem has been too much liberal arts. <laughs> too much <laughs> no, 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 thinking. No, no, I. I <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but you raised an interesting point earlier. It's true. It's like where it's also like there's an extent to which, yes, you need a sort of, I think it's useful for, and maybe even not useful, it's crucial for society for people that do mass scale engineering to right. wrestle with the, um, the, uh, uh, the ethics of what they're doing. But, but there is also like an area where you have to like, should they, should they, should they be the ones to worry about that? Should there, should there not also be like, at the level of like, and this is what Anil Dash often talks about when I talk to him about how, like how to keep software companies from turning into toxic fires whenever they touch the social world. He's like, look, a lot of this comes back to the way things are, are funded and the business models behind them. If the business model were not always massive growth, massive scale, uh, massive return, a potential massive return, right. uh, um, like there, 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 is, there is a contempt in the venture capitalist world for a software business that merely makes a decent return. Right. right. Well, you that's know, it. Like, There's like, no such thing as a sustainable company because the right. decent return, the revenue of the company right. is not the profit center. Right. 
the profit center is selling the company itself. Right, and so the, you know, there, there, are t there are gazillions of software developers I've met who would be perfectly happy to work at a cool company that just got a decent return and didn't have to metastatize the entire social universe. Well, there's a ton you know. of young developers who, exactly. who, who, when they drop out of college, they would be perfectly happy yeah. making five, 10, or $20 million and don't realize they've got to make a billion dollars in order to be okay. <laughs> right, so some of this is, is really the problems of capitalism, right? Modern capitalism, right. Whatever, whatever, it, whatever it touches with its desire for an incessant massive hockey stick growth, Kind of, kind of goes pretty sour, right? Right. I, mean, I don't know too many examples. No, of it that, does. Of it that. does until you get the new disrupting thing, which then ends up getting touched and then goes sour too. Yeah. But digital yeah. feels a little bit different than just plain old industrial technologies because of its 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 ability to scale exponentially over, over, and, and overnight, right? And I right. heard a lot about this, and I, and I think by the way that makes it more kind of like a cancer than than another life form. I also think it's something that winds up being a little bit written into the psychology of anyone who wields bits, which is that you're sort of aware that that there's something strange about the machines you're making. The machines are the machines are code. It's 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 speech. It's speech we speak to a computer. And so it can replicate instantly and it can generally scale uh, with very little marginal cost. I mean I chatted with this one guy, Ryan Olson. He's a he's a developer for Instagram. And I guess about two years ago, two and a half years ago, when they released um, Stories, which is their sort yeah. of copy of Snapchat, right? Works. It, yeah, it works really well. He had literally just finished that project. And it was really only like five, a small handful of coders, like probably a team of six coders did that. But it was like a, a huge work. They, they had a lot of fun doing it. It was all bleary-eyed. And he's like, yeah, I was on the train like the day after we released it. And you look on the train and you see people doing it. He's going, that is that is so weirdly fun. So there is there is built into, I think, modern software development, not all software development, is like all, it, there's almost an innate love of scale just because of the weird machines you're making can be so easily replicated. I think it slides really easily into that business model. Right. Like like, it, like you're, there's a real hand in glove. Not always, not always, but like, not all developers like that, but a, a fair amount of them, I think, you know, get bitten by the, by the delight of scale, partly because there, it does seem, it, it, this is coming off what you originally said, there's something weird and strange about the digital world that's different from the atomic world, right. you know? Uh, the other thing that's weird about it, I mean, and it kind of it, it, it is the way it lends itself to systems thinking and sort of system solutions. Now, yeah. as, a, as a lateral thinker since uh, the 70s, I guess, I've always been a fan of systems thinkers from Norbert Wiener sure. and Gregory Bateson. Licklider. Yeah, yeah Licklider, Lick right. So yeah. these are, and I understand, and it's almost a personality type. I can recognize them. Like my friend Amber Case is a systems thinker. Oh my God, absolutely. You know, yeah, she's You know, fantastic. she's one of them, uh, Nora yeah. Bateson. But the interesting thing about the, the systems thinking is this, there's, I think there's a widespread belief, even in the, the good progressive left now, that if only we could understand things as systems, the way that that Jerry Werbach might describe them with the brain or something, you know, that the the giant hypertext yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. program of his brain. If we could just see the relationships and do the pattern recognition, figure out the inputs and outputs, the techie, coding, mm, coding yeah, kind yeah, of people. That's yeah. what I thought of when I read yeah, Coders, yeah. your book, yep. was what do you feel like? Isn't there a problem inherent yes. in this systemic, almost techno-solutionist understanding of our global issues? Yeah, there absolutely is. And it comes down to 
One of the other sort of things that I heard over and over again when I talked to developers was they said, you know, one thing that kind of happened to me and I see happen to a lot of people who get into development is that they, part of being swept up in tech to solutionism is being swept up in automation and efficiency, right? Because like, so one, so we humans are, are, you know, are bad at doing a lot of things that the computers are good at doing, right? We're bad at doing things it, it repetitively accurately. <laughs> We're bad at remembering to do things over and over again. We're, we get bored. Um, and so you've got this machine that can do these things automatically for you. And so any developer immediately starts, when they're, particularly if they're young, they start realizing, oh, I could, I could actually automate all these boring things out of out of out of my life, and out of the, and then you realize, oh, I could I could automate them out of the entire world, right? You know, uh, um, and so of course one of the things that's great until you start automating things that actually should be done more slowly, right? This is one of the things we I think we've discovered with some social media is that it has essentially accelerated the pace of human interaction uh, um, a little too fast, right? You know, it's several times you've written about how one of the one of the delights of the early forms of social interaction online, be they email or be they discussion forums, was they had a slower pace. You would post, you would think, and so people yeah. actually came off as smarter online mm -hmm. than they were in in person. Like, you know, like you were actually a better version of yourself. I know, so it was a space for nerds only because it, only nerds could really write right. and think that to, exactly. at that level. And so the, 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 the real-time pace of the modern world is, is like literally that efficiency mindset. Let's torque up the, the speed of this stuff, right. but it, it, it runs off the rails. So this goes back to you saying like, um, you know, where does this solutionist mindset come from? I think some of it comes from like, from this exposure to this weirdly alien creature, the computer that can do these things, and then just kind of getting intoxicated by getting it to do that over and over again in all these different... I mean, I've even done it myself, right? Like I, like I learned enough programming while I was writing my book that I would immediately find myself bristling at anything that was slow or inefficient, and I would, I would, I would try automating it. Like, like, when my, right. like, like when my book came out, I found myself sitting there refreshing my Amazon page in that, in that horrible way of like, so, you know, what, what, what's my sales rank? Right. It's, it's, well, it's, it's funny. The weird, thing about, yeah. the weird thing about refreshing your Amazon page yeah. is... There's a few different ones in cash. It'll go down. There's like, no, no, exactly. when I do it, there's it's like, awful. there's like yeah. the 7,000, this 5,000 and the 6,000 and you I keep know. going and it's going between those three, I know. It's those three insane. things. So, so, yeah. when, so I realized, oh, this is, this is a repetitive action. It's crazy. So I can get a computer to do it for me. Right. So I just wrote a script that would go in and scrape the page four times a day, um, pull out what I needed and format it as a text message and text it to me four times a day so I could stop doing it. This is your classic software, a defined way of dealing with the world right. um, where it's like, oh, and I could... I've written this routine. I can I can let I can set this up so all my author friends could do it. Like you immediately start thinking scale. You immediately yeah. start thinking like do this over and over again. And I can really see how that becomes like the hammer. Everything becomes a nail to be hammered with efficiency. And that again, that's great a lot of the times. Yeah. But in but it it tends to break social systems, right? It does like, like scale and efficiency breaks socializing. It, it's a bit like when whatever company or organization, whatever number they put up on the wall to be the metric that we're going yes. for, they get that metric, but they destroy so much in the process. Campbell's law, exactly. Yeah. When, whenever you give like a, whenever you you know create a metric, people will perform to that metric. I mean, this is one of the things. Uh, it's a it's a great story, but like the the way that the creators of the like button. For Facebook realized uh, became disillusioned with what they had done. So they, they it was a couple of developers, a designer Leah Perlman and a uh, and a programmer Justin Rosenstein, and they were sitting around this before the like button. They were noticing that one of the problems was suppose suppose Doug posts a photo on Facebook, 
um, for Clive, for me, Clive, to, to, to show you that I like it, I would have to type a comment saying, hey, yeah. Doug, great photo. And it turns out that, like, that takes enough effort that, you know, I will only do it if I really, really feel the spirit moves me. Right. And they sort of... Which is a more accurate measure of light. It probably yeah. is, exactly. It, 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 yeah, so so the, the problem... They lower the barrier to entry of... of this is exactly where this is exactly the problem they stumbled into their initial idea was you know benevolent in that in that classically sort of idealistic developer way they they thought you know why don't we unlock positivity by making a single button that would that would essentially make it more frictionless like you're seeing the efficiency frictionless thing uh, and actually originally they were going to call it awesome Uh, uh, it was called awesome and I've often laughed thinking of how different the world would be if instead of like it was called awesome so anyway they put this together, they relaunch it, it becomes a massive, massively used feature on Facebook. I think like something one, one to three trillion likes at this point in time. Like it's, the numbers are nuts. But they, but they immediately start noticing, of course, that in Campbell's Law way, once you create a number of likes, people started getting neurotic about it. And much like me with my Amazon ranking, they would post something, they would sit there and refresh the page over and over again to see whether or not the likes were going up. And getting pissed off if it wasn't as high as their friend, getting jealous, and then changing their behavior to do things that they think will get more likes or to post things. So in, in one sense, all these design things slam into Campbell's Law. And those, those designers years later are like, yeah, that was a real mess. Right, and then those of us who were on the receiving end of it, it's hard for someone like me not to say, oh, this behavior change that they've induced is right. intentional. Right, exactly. That they have behavioral psychologists who figured out that getting me to do this is going to make me do that, and now I feel like this, and now I don't like myself, and my friendships are undermined. Yes. But you're saying it's a little bit less conscious than that. Uh, I think, I mean, sometimes I think it's conscious, sometimes I think it isn't. I think in that case it was unconscious. I think in other cases it's more conscious. You know, something you talk about, uh, I've seen you talk about it a couple times, definitely you talk about it in a Team Human is the sort of design of like, you know, little red icons showing how many unread messages there are. Yeah. Because, I mean, everyone generally knows that red is this alarming number. And so, yeah, I think you're seeing conscious manipulation there without question. Because um, well, you got B.J. Fogg and doing Captology. Absolutely. He knows what he's doing. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of his students uh, um, have become the creators of, of some of these things. Right, like, and then later, as we now see with the humane technology people, now the critics. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, I've, got yeah. my, I've got my 10 million, now I can critique. So, so the point is, yeah, but I think some of it's intentional, but some of it yeah. was done with, with um, naively with good intentions that just went off the rails because the people didn't have, they weren't thinking about history, they weren't thinking about, you know, all these, all these sort of humanities things that we talk about, you know, the, the ability to, to sort of, I mean, frankly, even the ageism of Silicon Valley is a problem. If you had had developers around these young social media companies who were in their 40s or 50s, who had been around on Usenet, in the in the 80s, they would have said, "Oh yeah, okay. Let me tell you what's going to happen when you do this. When you head into this social software world, people, because I've seen I've been on this rodeo, you know? right? They and that they, was people though they they were alive. They that were alive, but they were they Ethan were not Zuckerman being, and yeah. Howard Rheingold and yep, yep. And, and we just mentioned um, um, Dave Weiner. Dave I mean, Weiner, yeah, and they yeah. got yelled at as being whiners. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah, Old neck beard. And you know? Yeah, yeah. There were a lot. They could have asked Stacey Horn from Echo. You know, right. like, like you know, hired her. She would have been a great consultant for like you know Twitter and Facebook in the early days because she could have told you uh, uh, an earful of what what happened. Right. But what their mindset was, well, we're not going to make your problem. Yeah. We're yeah, not going to yeah. we're not going to make the same problems. We don't want you. Or the, or the, or the, I think I think in a weird way they also didn't they didn't even imagine that problems would exist. Like they they they, they were they were they just were. 
they were excited about this idea and they weren't they weren't they weren't wargaming problem. Right. I mean, like the the one problem they always thought about because they'd seen it in email the spam. Right. They knew that people they knew that corporate interests were going to try and pretend to be humans on their networks and they were alive to that problem. Uh, they were not alive to abuse or coordinated abuse or harassment or frankly the problems of speed and efficiency with socializing. Right. Like that's right. a really subtle problem that. You know, again, you certainly could have gone back to media theorists of the early 20th century with that. The people who are who are already, Irving Goffman, exactly, yeah. Goffman, or the you know Kermode, all the, all the thinkers of the uh, of the early 20th century who were who were frankly who found even like newspapers too accelerated, right? Like right. they were literally people like Harold Harold Innes basically right. said newspapers have been a catastrophe, you know, for for human cognition because. All they do is present this constant stream of you have to see this, you have to see this. Every day they come up with another thing. Right. Every single right. day. Right. Yeah. So Harold <laughs> is complaining about this in the 30s. And like, you know, I, I sometimes think, man, could you imagine, you know, having a seance to bring his uh, his spirit back and show him, the, you know, the, the news feed and Twitter. He would, he'd have an aneurysm. But, you know, but so the point being, you know, anyone who'd, who'd, who'd try to pay attention to the thinking about the collision between uh, social behavior and and the acceleration of modernity could have could have seen some of this coming. You know, you would have thunk. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, the other issue, though, is that the once you see the miracle of code, which yeah. is still a miracle, even oh, yeah. my first you know four X loop and basic sure. extensive was yeah, yeah. a miracle to me. Yeah. Once you see the miracle, it's hard not to think that that miracle is going to be the answer to. Right. Everything that's right. going on. Right, exactly. Yeah, if we could somehow code our way out of that. I will tell you that I have run into a subset of developers who are actually pretty thoughtful about this. And 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 in a one sense, my I pin my I pin my hopes for, for you know, uh, often on these people and hoping they could get more purchase. But like uh, there was a few people I met with Code for America who were working on and they're trying to work on like solving real problems of inefficiency, like government services that are incredibly slow and hard to access for people who legit need them, you know, like food right. stamp access. Like when they when they were handling this food stamp problem, it was because the government had set up this this 40-page horrible website that was just, you know, didn't display it well on on inexpensive mobile phones, which is what people who need food stamps will be using. And they wanted to essentially make it easier and more efficient for them to apply for food stamps because only some tiny minority of people who are eligible for food stamps were applying for them. And so they, they sat down and they were like, all right, this is a real problem. We're going to do this one. And they and one of the things they did was they decided not to automate everything at first, like not to try and do the most glossy on automation. They did nothing more than a really simple one page form that you'd fill it in, get a few pieces of data. It would send it to them and they would literally call the person up and talk them through the rest of it. And slowly, by actually keeping themselves in the loop, they were very intelligently able to realize, okay, what are the actual things we need to automate that will really be useful? Right. What are the problems these people really have filling out these forms? And they were able to slowly automate themselves out of the picture, but they kept themselves in the picture for a long time. A brilliant, brilliant design protocol, and it worked incredibly and well. And most people don't do that. No, I mean, they, they really even, don't. They don't even do consumer testing. They go, they go, what a consumer, they don't even ask what consumers want. Yeah. We know. I'm with this. Make this for people, and they go and hide for a year, and then come out with something. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, this is a problem in 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 all product development, right? You know, this is a problem with like people making you know pajamas for God's sakes, let alone code. So I can I can identify people who I think developer people who sort of have this fantastic view of things, but they are really in the minority. You know, like I would love for them to run stuff, but they do not run stuff. Right. They are. They are. They are right. They are the because edge what cases. happens is like I was. Um, 
I was uh, helping out with uh, Codecademy for a while. Sure, yeah. Great yeah. idea, it is an a great online idea. thing. Yep. But they were really allergic to the idea of human educators developing a pedagogy. Oh, interesting. They had such faith in feedback loops. Yeah, A-B testing. Like, yeah, 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 that, oh, people got further in the course if we did this and we did that. And then people can get further if we do that than we do this. Yeah. So that they just used the sure. data that they yep. were getting from users to then make the system better. Yeah, exactly. But, but mm -hmm. the, the definition of better is so, again, like the metric you put on the wall, is so yeah. tricky in terms of retention and understanding. And, yeah, exactly. and this, this, there's a revulsion in the code culture now for sort of the wishy-washy mm -hmm. ambiguity of human judgment. It's true. I mean, and there's a couple reasons. You know, one is one you've talked about, which is that, you know, it's binary versus fuzzy, right? You know, so it, it, if you deal with computers a lot, you get used to being very precise, needing to be very precise, disliking the fuzzy stuff because it's hard to quantify, hard to deal with. Um, it's also slow. I mean, that stuff is slow. Uh, sitting down with a bunch of teachers to work on a pedagogy is slow. It's faster to just run a bunch of A-B tests and sort of and believe you're moving things forward. Um, uh, that was really a message that came out loud and clear from talking to so many of these developers was their, the sort of the efficiency, uh, um, the you could call it a delight, you could call it an obsession, depending on whether you want to be optimistic or pessimistic about it, but it, it's very powerful and it, and it is quite, uh, it's quite hard to fight, you know? Like, uh, um, it, it, takes, it takes a rare humanistic developer to sort of be able to stand outside that, see that, and work with it and not have a control. Right. You know? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I know you're not Jewish, but you're- Jewish family though. Yeah, but you're- Two, two kids and wife. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. Canadian, which kind of counts as Jewish too. Sort of, yeah, if exactly. If you think about it, yep. and that you, you think about things. But what, as I was reading coders, I was thinking about early scribal literacy. Right. So the rabbis were the ones who could read and write. Yeah. And they're doing their nice spiritual thing, whatever, and reading scripture, helping out the Pharaoh, whatever they did. And it's almost as if in the Axial Age, when we got writing, they, it was almost as if there was a moment that they realized, oh my gosh, you know, we are writing reality. That, right, exactly. Yeah. And, that yeah. the, and so they turned to the law. And they said, okay, we are writing the law. The laws that we write are going to be the rules by which human beings live. Mm -hmm. Now, no matter what the laws are, the people who are writing the code are writing the reality by which we live. They're embedding right. yep. the, the rules through which we interact, right. through Be which we yeah. live. Because Judaism is, is marked by this handing down of words, you know, like, like the source code right. from God, they took very seriously the idea that their acts of writing were going to have this architectural effect on the world. Right, and I feel yeah. like that's, that's the great awakening that coders need to have, yeah. is that they are, they are the masons or the rabbis or the scribes of this next millennium, that they are yeah. writing the rules by which humanity will, will live or die. Sure, I mean, like, one, of the, one of the sort of, one of the, one of the uh, similarly uh, and, and, and nearer but also historical parallels I thought of was, I, I, was, I guess it came back because I was, I was watching Hamilton, I, I saw Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I was I was reminded, you know, looking you know looking at the uh, at the book, the source book, uh, um, about Hamilton that was written, that yeah, all these all the guys who basically had power back in early America uh, were 
most of them were lawyers, and the ones who were not lawyers were comfortable writing legally. Right? right. They know? were lawyers. They were coders. They were, co of, they were coders yes. of of the. Law. They, they, they were and they were aware that they were writing source code of a civilization. Right. And the only seat at the table was if you could speak like that, and you know, and it was it's really really interesting. Right. If you, you know? could speak like that, not if you could just pay like that. No. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and yeah. now the seat at the table, the people who are. Mm -hmm. Choosing what code yep. gets written are the ones with the cash. Yeah, exactly. And so this is sort of why I, uh, like you, I'd sort of done, I'd got, in, I'd got my early interaction with like this nerdy stuff when I was a kid. Uh, I, got, I got bitten by that sense of power and control. Um, not something you get very often when you're 13 years old, right, you know? Um, but I put it aside partly because, again, my family wouldn't buy me a damn computer. And B, I decided I wanted to become a writer. So. But, but hilariously, I couldn't avoid the thing that, the thing that originally obsessed me because I, I, I graduated thinking that I would do serious things like write about politics, which is yeah. what serious people did. But I ended up just writing about nerdy crap. And then at the exact same, I, I graduate in the 90s just as the internet explodes. I'm like, great, I get to write about this nerdy stuff all the time. Yeah. But then I, then I start picking up coding again in my 40s because I realized, I think I, be, I was beginning to realize I wanted to talk more deeply with my interview subjects about what they were doing, so I wanted to know how the languages worked. But then I started discovering that, like, yeah, it was incredibly, A, it was, it was aesthetically and creatively pleasant to do this. That's, that's frankly, that's what I tell people. It's, it's yeah. fun to do just because it's literally fun. Oh, my God. I mean, one of these guys. I uh, find it so unfun. Oh, you do? I was I, basic, extensive, and Pascal was sort of where I stopped. <laughs> and I understand how to do Pascal as a right. whole. Code is not like Pascal any. It's a whole different thing. You're True. just calling up friggin' functions. Yeah, yeah. You just go online, find the function or something, and then paste it into your thing. <laughs> there is a lot of there is a lot of cutting and paste coding at this point in time. I agree. At least that's uh, all I know how to do. The, the, uh, and then uh, get a resource leak, and it's all over anyway. Right. <laughs> That's I'm true. A, I guess I'm, this is the limit of a bad coder. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do coding part, like some of the coding I do these is literally just almost like literally creative in the sense of like, I like using P5, which is this wonderful JavaScript library for doing like um, interactives and animations and just weird kind of beautiful stuff uh -huh. to look at. You know, that, so I, like part of me is literally like other people would sketch. And I would literally do like a crazy visualization thing that has like no purpose. processing almost. Yeah, pro it, it, yeah, yeah, it's a version of processing okay. P5, except it works JavaScript, it works in the browser. And, and for people that are that don't know what we're saying, it's like you could, you you type code lines and then you see pretty pictures of yeah, what you've done on the other side of the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, you're like, you're like draw, me a, draw me a circle of this size with a random color and then track the mouse movement, but, but reverse mirror it. And then you sort of, like someone can literally just create with some weird strokes, some like hallucinogenic looking painting. Right. I mean, that to me, that's just that's just being weird. But that was and the I, original. I, Everyone I knew who was involved in code was in doing the late 80s, stuff. early 90s was yeah. making fractal art. Yeah, fractal art, exactly, yeah. So I, um, uh, so, so some of it is just, yeah. so, so I, tell, I, I tell people this is a fun way to sort of play. You sort of, you exit also just almost a contact high, learning how this stuff works yeah. that can be useful when you actually have to make something that's like a legit tool you need to use. Um, so I, I'm kind of a fan of it for that reason, you know, like, uh, and in fact, I often think this is one of the problems with the kind of learn to code stuff is that it proceeds from this grim sense of like, this is a job as opposed to this is like a, um, a discipline, that, a, a many open-ended toolkit that can be used for lots of things. And the entry point is almost always something that was just kind of fun for people, you know, like um, when I talk to the people who are in their 50s or 40s, um, like they'll tell you. When they were doing, you know, basic coding in the, in the 80s, 
They were doing it like in the way that you would do origami or archery. They had no idea this was going to become something useful in their lives. And I sometimes think that's actually the best way. That's all my, I wish more teaching of it were that way. It's like, you know, I literally, I don't want you to become like, to think of this as going to be something where you become a million dollar developer. I want you just to develop something that's, that is a fun, strange thing that you, that you would, you would prefer yeah, to do. In that's your what, I mean, I've been screaming at businesses about for 20 years. I wrote this book, Get Back in the Box. I remember. It was going to be called Follow the Fun. The idea of just do what you really, really, really yeah. love and you're going to have better products and better things and they're going to serve people and they, don't disconnect. Oh, good God. You know, yes, exactly. The, the, the one interesting story you tell in the in in the book is about um, Brianna Wu. Oh yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Who yeah. was a, a, a Gamergate victim? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and and was getting all these you know a, a very high number of death threats per minute or whatever. A dogpiling where like you would get like a bunch of people would each get their thirty bots to to like flood her at replies so that she essentially Twitter becomes unusable. She cannot. She cannot uh, see a legitimate reply because it's drowned up by 300, you know, like abusive ones. So, And then they figured out how to stop that. Well, basically, yes. Yeah. She basically says, it's interesting. She says, in her opinion, Twitter has done a better job at dealing with that particular type of harassment than Facebook has. Than Facebook and, or, but or email has. But success yeah. in that means this person is receiving fewer death threats. Yes, exactly. Right? Is that... Yeah. Yeah, no, no, yeah. It, so I, it's not only not, a couple not, a day now, not, right? Not. And of course, you know, this is this is this is sort of the problem with social media right now is that if if you're on the top of the network looking down, uh, uh, you know, you have this you have this high level business persons, VC persons, coders persons view of things where it's all just traffic and engagement. And the problem is, from that perspective, a absolutely wonderful uh, tweet at someone offering them an amazing thing that they should look at is traffic and so is an abusive uh, uh, misogynist attack, right? And so, you know, any, this is why, this is why, you know, the, the, this phrase of engagement is so incredibly insidio insid insidious because anything that constitutes like information flows on those networks, even the terrible stuff is, uh, is just engagement. And it is very, it's, 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 it's been hard well, right. Know, it, it, engagement it, it, and engagement is the metric that they put on the wall. So any Russian kid can hack Facebook, precisely. not by hacking the code, yeah. but by hacking the business plan. Exactly. Yeah, that's precisely right. They're hacking the business plan. They're hacking the reward for engagement and the desire to satisfy the eyeballs for advertising. One interesting question that has come up over and over again is, you know, are there alternate business models that would that would de-incentivize relentless metastatic engagement, right? You know? Well, we were hoping platform cooperativism might be one of them. Or... That's one of them, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I mean, like, I guess I will tell you one thing that's kind of fascinating is like, I mean, I don't know, you you probably have the similar experience because you've talked to a lot of people about what they do online. But I, you know, I'll do a talk or I'll do, you know, particularly with those young people or even middle-aged people, and someone will will come up to me afterwards and we'll chat. And I'll be like, so what do you guys do online? Tell me what you do. And like they do all the obvious things, like they're doing Instagram, they're doing whatever. And I'm going, but what, you know, what's the what's the weird stuff? Like what, you know, what's the stuff that's really uniquely you? And they would all be like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, like a snowboarder. And so I'm in these three different snowboarding forums. And like, you know, they're all run on like just janky old, like open source PHP, yeah. BB, BBS stuff. Uh, they're non-commercial, they're being run by someone, it probably costs 50 cents a month for right. the server space. And you go look at it, and there's like there's like 300, 400 regulars. Some are from Switzerland, some are from you know anywhere where there's there's skiing. Some are Canada, some are you know, right. and they're all like talking about 
snow and stuff like that and snowboarding. You're having a great time. There's there's nothing in those environments that's trying to instill no, engagement. No, it's like the old net. There's no metrics. Yeah. And so you realize, oh, this stuff still exists. Like it's all over the place. These things still thrive. And God, wouldn't it be great if we could make the 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 the, the larger ones behave a bit more according well, to these then laws? The other question you know? I have though is, if those are still there, yeah, what are the larger ones for? <laughs> right. Yeah. Why, yeah, why do we need? Why them? do yeah. I need to be? I mean, as an author, I want to be involved in the global conversation because it's right. my business. Right. But why does any of us need to be in a generic global conversation? Yeah. 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 Talking that, to. I'm going to. Why does Why does Trump care whether I'm liked his post or you, not? You, you're asking an incredibly good deep question that I've been trying to figure out how to write about this. Right. Uh, I've been pitching for a while a column for Wired that I, I think the problem is it's bigger than a column. The columns are six hundred words. It's like writing a villanelle. So I need something probably bigger. But I, essentially, it's a problem of like it's about popularity. It's about the question of what does popularity mean? What does like in both its positive, it's toxic, it's um, existential, it's spiritual, it's financial yeah. and commercial meanings. Right? It's funny, I had a drama teacher at Princeton. Yeah. I did this weird little play uh, uh, called Offending the Audience by Peter Hanke. It's sort of a crazy theater cool. thing. And it became, this little production thing became the deep, true, life-changing love of like 40 people. Yeah. And like it, 40 people were in tears and yeah. hugging at them. And he said, you got to understand this moment should mean as much to you as if you get on Broadway and yep. win a Tony and whatever, yep. this is the thing. And, and we have to all learn to be satisfied with appropriately scaled yep. uh, uh, it, success. Th th there's this funny, um, there's this funny uh, song uh, in this, in this musical that my wife, played for me. It's, it's a great song. I'm going to mangle the line, but it's something like, I'd rather be nine people's first favorite thing than a thousand people's ninth favorite thing. Mm. Uh, uh, um, and, right. and it's sort of, it's sort of about what it means to be, what it means to be, to be popular in the, in, in a way that is meaningful. Right. So, so, so you're asking, you know, why, if all these little forums satisfy people's desires, what do we need the big ones for? I think there's something there that has to do with uh, with our sense of what the public sphere is, what our orientation to the world is, the, the, the mediated views of celebrity and fame that we've seen going back hundreds of years now. So I've sort of been reading all these books, like the origins of celebrity culture and fame in 18th century uh, Brit British literature. Right. You should look uh, at um, self-fashioning in the Renaissance. Yes. It's really interesting. And there's a book about novelty that I've been uh -huh. reading. The, the, the idea of not, what does it mean for something to be new, right? You know, to, to, to not be old. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to synthesize all this stuff because I think there's something there. This is not a column. This is like a book. It's probably a, a book. Yeah, it's probably books. a book. Exactly. Because like that strikes me as, as, no, this is like as, a, as what's at the heart of this. Well, this is a giant, it, it, it a giant subject area. It but, probably is. But it yeah. has to do with it. And this is part of what my whole Team Human thing has been about is to yes. get us to think less centrally about our generic relationship to yes. the entire universe right. and more about our specific relationship to the other people in our lives because that's where it happens. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and that's, uh, um, and yeah, and so this larger question, yes, yeah, so the question you ask, you know, why would I care about, you know, this Twitter stuff? It, it's, um, it, it's a symptom of a problem to which your book is trying to answer. Like you're, right. trying, you're trying to say like, whatever it is that's causing that obsession, we, you know, there, there is no nutrition. There's little nutrition to be found there. Right, we, we and at to, least if you elsewhere. need to 
and and you're not going to be able to calibrate, yeah, exactly. you know, psychologically or emotionally in that space. So at least calibrate with other human beings now before you keep spending all this time out there yeah, in, in random land. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> random, random land is actually a great, that's, I want to call the internet random land now, you know. <laughs> Let's stop calling it. For, for a while there, I was trying to get people to go back to calling it the, the global information superhighway. Just because I, 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 yeah. I thought, I thought the, the metaphor of us all being in cars screaming at each other was actually kind of useful. Uh, um, but uh, but random land is a great one there. It's like you know random, it's, it's just random stuff happening out there. So yeah, I um, I think uh, these are these are the these are the deep these are the deep questions, right? You know, That's why we're here, though. Yeah, this exactly. is our job. Yeah, it is. It is. This is not nostalgia. This is this is like a different set of design principles that are valuable uh, um, that we need to think about and, and wield as quickly and elegantly ready to mind as we as we think about the design principles of digital. That's really right. what we're talking about. Right. That we have to become as good at physical reality as the coders are yes. with digital. Exactly. Precisely. The the um so yeah, that's that's maybe where we're at. So thanks for coming on Team Human. Thanks for writing coders. Thanks for being a, a voice of, of human reason at the at the New York Times when you're there. It was fun to be on here, man. Thank you. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today, Clive Thompson, is the author of Coders the making of a new tribe, and the remaking of the world. You can find out more about his work at clivethompson.net. Like I explained at the top of the show, we'll be taking a little break and coming back with a new and improved Team Human and hopefully fortified Douglas Rushkoff. A special thanks to our radio broadcast partners at KSPC 88.7 FM, broadcasting from Pomona College in Claremont, California. You can stream the show at kspc.org, where Team Human plays on Sundays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And check out our friends at KXRY 107.1 and 91.1 FM, broadcasting in the Portland area. Or tune in on the web at xray.fm, where Team Human plays Mondays at noon Pacific time. We love college and community radio. If you'd like Team Human to play on your favorite station, I know I would, please contact team at teamhuman.fm and let us know. Thanks also to our many subscribers and supporters. You can keep this show alive by subscribing or supporting at teamhuman.fm. You can find one another most easily on a new Reddit that was started by some Team Human listeners so that everyone can find one another most easily. That's at reddit.com slash r slash team human. I will try to check in there as much as I can as well. You can also find written versions of my monologues and an archive of all of our shows at Media. So more soon. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. Our associate producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Our photographer is Aaron Lacasio. And our stage manager is Kristen Needham. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Thanks for joining Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.